you're new here this morning, my name is Floyd, and I do the majority of the, the teaching, preaching, and um, we are working our way through the book of 1 Peter, and we are in chapter 4, we're going to finish up chapter 4 this morning. I titled this, the message, um, The Judgment We Need. One of the worst things, you know, that you can be accused of in our day is being judgmental. Um, like you don't, you could, you could do all kinds of things. You could, um, you can steal, kill and destroy. Just don't be judgmental. That's the worst. But then there's points along the way in scripture where there's judgment talked about in a needful sense, like something that you and I actually need. And it tends to be this idea of God looking at our lives at times and saying, this stays, this goes, and it needs to happen. Many of us have gone through seasons of our lives where it may have felt like, and you've heard me share this uh, analogy before, it may have felt like we were cleaning out our faith garage. You know, it was like the things that we had thought we're suddenly being questioned. And we're going, and we went through a season of time where it felt like you just did like a garage clean where you just kind of take everything out and you sit there and you look at it and you think, what belongs back in my life and what should stay out? And it's not uncommon, especially if you've grown up. Actually, it doesn't really matter whether you've grown up in church or not. There are those points of life for many of us where it seems like our paradigm that we look at God with, the, the lenses that we look at God through are being challenged, and suddenly we realize that there's some stuff that's not the way it should be, and it needs to change. And we need to look at God different. We need to look at ourselves different. We need to read his word differently and come more in line with what the truth is than what we may have been brought up with or what we may have previously thought. That's the idea of the judgment that we're going to read about in a few moments. It's that, that season or that process where God is graciously and lovingly going through our lives and sort of sorting out things and including things. A number of years ago, we were in the process of finishing out our basement and we bought a used side-by-side refrigerator to put in the basement because we didn't want to spend the money for a new one. And that refrigerator had one of those nice little ice and water things in the, in the side door. And I thought, you know, someday I'm going to hook that up. Well, someday came. Um, after about five, six years, because you don't want to rush into things. And, um, and so this winter, I hired a plumber to you know, run the water line and connect it to a, uh, a water line and connect that ice and water up. And I thought, it'll be that easy. Like, that's, that's the way it's going to go. And he'll hook the water line up, and voila, we will have ice and water coming out of the door of our refrigerator, and it'll be amazing. And um, he hooked the line up, and I saw that he had closed the, the valve allowing water to the refrigerator. And, well, no big deal. And, um, and then the next morning, I came downstairs, and there was water dripping out of the ceiling. I'm pretty sure it's not supposed to be doing that. 
And um, so I had to call the plumber again and discovered that one of the fittings was leaking and stuff. So, you know, I kept my hands off of it and he got that taken care of. And, and then I thought, well, now I'll turn the water on. So I turned the water on and something didn't sound right. So I shut it back off and I, I should have probably checked the filter because, you know, those things have a filter. If you don't know those things have a filter and you have one, you probably should be changing your filter. Um, it's getting old. But so I checked and the filter was broken in two. Oh, well, this is easy. I'll just order more filters off of Amazon and replace the filter. So I ordered filters off of Amazon, and after over a week, I started wondering where these filters were and discovered that they had gotten lost somewhere along the way, so I had to cancel that order and reorder filters. So finally, the filters come. I put the new filter in, and I'm like, finally, I'm going to have ice and water. And so I turned the water on, put the new filter in, and I you know, click it over to water, and I put my cup under there, and nothing's coming out, but I look down, and there's water coming across the floor. Like, now we do have a problem. Pop the little panel off, and sure enough, there's a water line, you know, that comes down through there, and it's broken, too. It's like, well, great. So I got online, you know, a new water line's like 60 bucks. And I don't know if I really want to spend the money, but now I'm already into it. And I thought, well, I'll at least make ice. So you know, left the water on so that it could make ice and had guests over and all of a sudden, you know, there were some kids playing in the basement. They come upstairs and they're like, hey, there's water all on the floor. You've got to be kidding me. I go down there, you know, there's water just running out of the ice maker. And, and so I shut off the water and decide I'll deal with it the next morning. And so next morning, you know, I, I pull the ice maker out. It's disintegrating. Like it's literally, like it's got cracks in it and it's the, the lining's coming off of it. I'm like, well, this is great. So um, so I'm like going to have to throw this away, and I jump online, ordered a new ice maker, and, and I got to looking, you know, YouTube's a wonderful help, and I figured out how to change the water line, and, and um, hardware store in town bailed me out for $2.50, I replaced that $60 water line, and I'm like, this is great, the ice maker is coming, this is going to be great, so several days later, the ice maker comes, and I installed the ice maker, turned the water back on. Now I've got the new water line in there, and the setting must have been wrong because it overfilled the ice tray, and again, I had water coming down out of the ice maker. And so, anyway, so shut the thing off, and, and I um, you know, adjust it back so it's not filling it so far, and wouldn't you know, 24 hours later, I had ice in my tray. It's like, great. I'll, so, you know, hit the thing, cup, it's like, like what's wrong now? And, I, and so the ice tray has an auger that goes around. Well, it had come apart. And so I had to take it all apart and, you know, fix it. And miracle of miracles, it all works now. Here's my point. I judged that refrigerator repeatedly. <laughs> and necessarily, in order for it to function the way it was designed to function, it required a lot of judging and a lot of changing. It was going to need to make changes. Now, if the refrigerator had a mind, and I was pretty sure it was cursed, but... <laughs> If it had a mind, I know it would have been darkened and twisted, but the refrigerator would have kept saying, what are you doing to me? Just leave me the way I am. Just leave me alone. 
I'm fine. I've sat here for five years. There's nothing wrong with me. And I would have said in my infinite wisdom, because I'm God in this scenario, I know it's a stretch, but I, I'm God in this scenario, so I would have said in my infinite wisdom, I know best, I know what you need, and I know that I'm going to need to do some judgment and some change in order for you to function the way that you were designed to function and to produce what you were designed to produce. And it's kind of a crude illustration, but I think that's the idea that we're going to see in 1 Peter is this idea of God going through our lives in his grace and his mercy and doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. We're the ones sitting there saying, why? Why are you letting this happen? Why don't you just leave me alone? Like, why don't you work on somebody else for a while? And God in his infinite wisdom and his grace knows that some judgment needs to happen. So we're going to read this phrase as we read through the text in a minute here. That judgment begins at the house of God. And I wanted to sort of help us maybe redefine our thinking about judgment before I read that phrase. That judgment begins at the house of God. In other words, judgment starts with us. And it's a good thing. If you have your Bibles with you, you're welcome to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. And if not, I'll have it up here on the screen. Let me uh, thank you for jumping that for me. Okay. Here we go. He starts with beloved, and I'm glad he does. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So there's been a bit of a transition in First Peter. If you've been following with us, you see him sort of starting, and he reminds them that they are called to endure sufferings. And if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, he even sort of again draws on this image of a refining fire, and he picks it up right here again. There's been some discussion about this word fiery by theologians, like does he mean that is he predicting that they are going to literally be burned? Because if you know anything about the context of First Peter, you would know that this generation was the generation that Nero literally burned in his garden. He turned an entire culture against Christianity. And he burned them. Some of them he killed first, some of them he didn't. 
And so there's, you know, some discussion, was this like almost a prophetic type of thing where he was, where he was um, acknowledging that this is what they were going to go through? And I think the more accurate understanding of this text is that it's connected to the first chapter where he talks about that there's this, this fiery trial and he talks about a refining fire and he says, your faith is more precious than gold that is going through a refining fire. And I love that imagery because it's that idea of God taking something it's very, very precious to him, your faith and my faith, but sort of tenderly putting it into the fire, letting it go through some refining. And if you are only focused on the difficulty and the pain of the fire, you miss the heart of the great refiner who's putting it there. And I, and I just... Like I've turned back to 1 Peter chapter 1 different times as I thought about people going through hard things, through difficult things. And that there's a tenderness from the Father to actually allow us to go through those things and to refine us and to go through that fiery trial. And that's what he's talking about here. But there's like this gradual transition that sort of happens through 1 Peter. He talks about enduring suffering. And if you were here several weeks ago, Billy preached and he talked about, he kind of turned a corner and talked about embracing suffering. Well, now it's like we're turning another corner and he's talking about leveraging our suffering, like a purpose and a point to it, and that it's going to serve us and God, and that there, there's a reason for it, and that it's accomplishing something. So it's just, it's one thing to endure it. It's another thing to embrace it. But you probably are not going to be able to embrace it unless you see that it actually has a purpose and there's value in the difficulty in a season of suffering. So he starts out and he says, don't be surprised when that fiery trial comes. But most of us are, aren't we? Suffering raises questions. Like when we are going through something, the diagnosis comes, it's cancer or the relationship that you value is suddenly in trouble or there's more bills than there is money, you know, the list of reasons that we go through difficult, hard times. And it starts to raise all these questions, a bunch of them. Why is life so difficult? Like, why is it so hard? Why me? Why now? Is this my fault? Is God punishing me? What am I supposed to do? And then, of course, the one that we're all asking in those times, how do I make this stop? Like, can, I, can we fast forward this process? These questions show up pretty regularly in our lives. And you may be here this morning, and you're like, not me. My life has actually been pretty well perfect. Never been disappointed. I've never really gone through anything. I've never questioned what was going on in my life. I've never questioned why God was doing what he was doing. And if that's you, we should probably trade places. Because most of us do go through those times. Most of us go through those times when we're wondering what in the world is going on and why is God allowing this to happen right now. The generation that Peter was writing to, this group of people that he was writing to, they had to have been asking those questions because these questions come out of our humanity. 
they arise in us because we are human. And we start asking, why? What's the point? Why is this so difficult? And how do I just make it stop? I want it to just go away. I want to go back to when I wasn't going through what I'm going through. And those are normal. Peter doesn't answer all these questions. He does kind of address some of them. And one of the common things that guys like myself say when we're sitting with somebody going through a difficult time is, um, okay, that one back there, stop. This one's still here. Okay. The screen back there, you don't all have to turn around, but it went black on me, so <laughs> scared me. Um, one of the things that, that guys like myself will often say to people is, well, you're not going to get all the whys answered. And you won't actually get all the whys answered. But there are some answers. And God in his grace and his mercy does answer some of the whys as to why we are going through things. And he shares some principles. And I think that some of the principles that Peter shares with his readers here are helpful for us. First of all, he says... In this text, he says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That, um, it's a directive. Like, he's literally directing people. He's like, rejoice when you suffer, when you share in Christ's sufferings. Now, this is going to raise a question. Have I ever shared in Christ's sufferings? See, most of us are aware that in parts of the world right now and in church history, There are times when people have specifically been targeted because of their faith in Jesus Christ. People have had their houses taken away from them. They've lost their jobs. They've been imprisoned. There are places where it is literally illegal to do what we do right now, which is have church and study the Bible and talk about Jesus. And we would look at those people and we would say, well, clearly those people are suffering for Christ. But I've never been arrested for preaching or for reading my Bible or carrying one or attending church. I've never had my house taken away. So maybe this text is irrelevant to all of us as Americans. Well, if you find those qualifiers there, show them to me because I'm not seeing them. Those are qualifiers that we tend to project on those kind of passages. What he's talking about here is those sufferings that happen in our lives. And he says, for the sake of Christ. And that can cover a wide range of things. It can be those things that happen to you simply, places where you could have taken a shortcut, but you didn't because of your faith where you could have responded differently, but you didn't because of your faith, and you chose the more difficult route because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe it's just those things that are in your life that are just there for a test. Friend Mike Michener from uh, South Carolina says, you find three sort of reasons given for suffering throughout Scripture. He says, there's times when it talks about suffering as a battle to be won. 
Like it's, it's literally, you know, Scripture says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickednesses in high places, Ephesians 6. Um, talks about in, in Corinthians, you know, the, the letter to the Corinthians, that, that our, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, we are in a spiritual battle, and there are times when we are just in a battle, and it needs to be won. Like, we need to fight through it. Um, there are, Scripture talks about things that come into our lives that are trials to be endured. They're here for a season. And, and we're supposed to stay true. Our faith is supposed to stay strong through those trials. Paul talked about the trials that he endured. Paul also talked about a third kind of suffering, which was a thorn to be received. It was something that God had allowed in his life, and at some point he had wrestled through it. It had... It had bothered him, he had prayed through it, and he finally came to the conclusion that God's grace was going to be revealed in this thorn, and the thorn was there to just be received and to be a platform that God's grace was going to be showed in his life. Those are all consistent with the New Testament. What Peter is talking about here could fit in any of those categories. He's talking about suffering, and he doesn't spend a lot of time giving a lot of qualifiers as to the reason, but there is this call and this directive to rejoice in the sufferings, and that is not human. It's not human. To complain is human in suffering. To feel victimized is human in suffering. But to rejoice is going to take a power that we don't have in and of ourselves. So the path to joy that Peter gives his readers and us, and I want to kind of quickly go through this in this text, and then we're going to share in communion together. First of all, he's calling them, he says, consider the cause. He addresses the reason behind the suffering. He's like, don't suffer because of your disobedience. Don't suffer because you're an evildoer, a thief, or a meddler. In other words, if that's the reason that you and I are suffering is because of our own sin, then we start the conversation at a little different place. Then, there, then the, the way that we're supposed to respond to the suffering or the difficulty in our life is just some good old-fashioned repentance. If you are a person who is given to a lot of uh, criticism and, and um, gossip, and then you complain because oh my goodness, people don't like me. And I'm suffering because people don't like me. Well, you're not suffering for righteousness sake. You're suffering for your own because of your own failures. And the conversation starts somewhere else. And Peter addresses that with these people and with us. He says, if you're going to suffer, he says, suffer because you're doing the right thing, not because you're doing the wrong thing. Now, most of us know what it's like to suffer for doing the wrong thing or for being the wrong kind of person. You know, I, I can think of seasons in my younger life, very wise in my own eyes, and then thought it was terrible that people never asked my opinion of things. Like I'm suffering. I wasn't suffering. It was annoying. <laughs> it just goes with it, you know? If somebody, if somebody always has all the answers, people tend to not ask them any questions. Um, but I've been there. And Peter's addressing, like, consider the cause. Think about, like, why are you going through what you're going through? 
Did, did I cause this because of my own failure, my own sin? And if that's the case, then he's like, let's start there. Let's address it there. And I'm glad he addresses that because there's this tendency for all of us to just automatically assume our own innocence as soon as something is difficult. Well, it's not my fault. Couldn't be my fault. I just live in a horrible community with people who are jerks. And they're the ones creating all my problems. Well, sometimes it is. And so the directive to rejoice is in the context of him telling them, make sure you think about why it's here. Make sure you're not suffering because of your own sin. Secondly, he's inviting them to take the test. This, I think, is sort of the meat of the message in this text, where he's inviting them to take a different view of their suffering than what humans tend to take. Because he's telling them there's this fiery trial and it's this idea of God allowing something. He says, don't think it's strange. Like think that this is probably normal for a follower of Jesus Christ to go through difficult times. So he says, don't act like, well, God owes me an easy life. Like I have been so good Man, I've been in church more often than, I've been, than I haven't been, you know? I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. Nothing bad should happen to me. And Peter, like he's already addressed that. Like sometimes bad things do happen because of our failures. He's saying this is different. It's like this is suffering that you are going through and it has a point. It has a purpose to it. It is refining stuff out of you. It's that judgment that's happening. Man, we're going to have to take a different look at it. Because if we're going to rejoice in it, then we have to see it for something other than just, I'll put my head down, complain, and hopefully one day it gets better. But more of the idea of God has given me an opportunity to get rid of my own selfish pride and the stuff that is actually my worst enemy, and that's myself. And at no point are we confronted with our own sin like we are when we are in seasons of pain and suffering. Man, our selfishness shows up really quick. And we are able to see things that make us really uncomfortable. And if, if you and I insist that our response to suffering is to be victims, we will miss the test and the, and the refining that God wants to do in our lives. We'll miss the opportunity to get rid of some of our stinking pride. We'll miss the opportunity to tear down some of our idols. And we'll miss the opportunity to be closer to God. But being a victim, that's a great gig. Because when I'm a victim, everybody owes me everything. It's awesome. Like, I can mistreat people because I'm a victim. You just don't know what happened to me. I can, I can be... Uh, 
um, self-centered, and I can justify it, it's awesome being a victim. It's also incredibly self-destructive. The world gets darker and smaller the longer we stay there. And that, that victim mindset of, oh my goodness, everyone's against me. God doesn't like me anymore. And my life is so hard and nobody knows the trouble I have, you know. Sort of Eeyore if you were ever into Winnie the Pooh, you know. Not much of a tail for not much of a donkey. And like that's the mentality that keeps us from experiencing and growing in the areas that God is addressing by the difficult seasons. And we can hang on. It's actually the most proud response that we can take. Humility and victimhood are at opposite ends of the spectrum. Victimhood belongs with pride because the focus is on me and myself and my pain and what I'm experiencing and, and everybody just owes me something because of it. And... At the other end of the spectrum is humility, which is what Peter is calling these people to. And he's saying, when you go through trials, he says, rejoice, because God's up to something. He's doing something in your life, and he's doing something in my life. Johnny Erickson Tata, who, um, if, you, if you're familiar with her, you know that she's uh, paralyzed from the neck down due to a diving accident back in the 80s. She says, God allows one form of evil to expose another form of evil, and that's our sin. In other words, God allows the, the evil of suffering and the difficulty in order to expose, or I would even say, I would reword it just slightly and say, God allows one form of evil like suffering in order to deliver us from another form of evil, which is our pride and our selfishness and our idolatry. It's not because he doesn't like us. It's actually because he deeply, deeply loves us. He knows what will destroy our lives. He knows what will rob our peace. It's our self-will. It's our self-worship. It's this I am king of my life mentality that destroys us. It ruins our relationships. It, ru it ruins our peace. It, it makes us very anxious, insecure people because we know at a deep level that we're not wise enough or strong enough to be our own gods. And yet we keep turning to that. We're not wise enough or strong enough to be the center of the universe. And yet... In our flesh, we keep turning to that. And so Peter is saying, here's a gift, suffering. You're a steward. In other words, God's loaning you the gift of suffering for a season and a period of time so that you can bring honor to his name. You remember, if you were reading the book of Acts, when the apostle Paul was struck with the, with the light and, and he was blinded, and he winds up you know, being led to this house, and then God sends a guy named Ananias, and he's like, he's like go down, and he says, pray for Paul that he receives his sight. And, then, he show, and then, then God says something so odd. 
He says, for I have shown him many things he must suffer for my sake. You're like, that's your call? That's the way God called Paul? He says, Paul, I've selected you, I've called you, I've given you this this amazing ministry. I don't know if he told him that he was going to write the majority of the New Testament and the people would be reading it thousands of years later, but he's definitely communicating to Paul, I've put my hand on your life, I've got something special for you, and then it's like, and you are going to suffer a lot. And Paul had the faith to say, okie dokie, count me in, let's go. And he, in fact, did. He later wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. He talks about how it has been given to you to suffer for his sake. It's like this idea of God handing you a gift. He's like, you should take the gift and be a steward of it because guess what? You are going to lose all the things that are the worst thing about you in the process. Like, I'll take care of things. I'll get rid of your, I'll help you get rid of your pride. I'll help you get rid of your idolatry. I'll help you get rid of the stuff that is going to destroy your life. If you'll just steward the suffering, steward the difficulty. So be a steward and not a victim. And then lastly, rejoice in the results. Count it joy, he says. Well, you can't count it joy unless you see a point to it. Unless you believe in faith that God is taking something out of my life that's not supposed to be there and it's the worst thing for me. And then you can start to look at this through a different lens and say, this is a reason for joy. This is a gift from God. And I'm grateful for it. He's given me an opportunity. Less of me and more of him. And that allows us this joyful freedom from our own self-worship, our own pride. And it frees us from these cycles of repeating the same garbage over and over and over. How many of you, myself included, how many of us, have cycles of frustration and sin in our lives? Like we just, it just feels like we keep circling the same garbage again and again. But as soon as anything remotely difficult comes in to our lives, we immediately go to victimhood. And we start to feel sorry for ourselves. And we start to pity ourselves and we want everybody else to pity us. Instead of saying, God, you are doing something in this season of my life right now, in this disappointment, in this difficult time, you are doing something, and so I give you the opportunity. I just open it up. Lord, take everything out of me that's not supposed to be there. I don't want to keep repeating the same cycles. I want to live in freedom. And if God wants to use and allow a suffering season in our lives in order to get rid of those cycles, it's out of his mercy and his love that he does it and we ought to welcome it with open arms even when we don't feel like it so my sermon in a sentence this morning i just literally copied the last verse of the text because it said it so much better than i did like peter he just does a great job in one sentence of just kind of encapsulating everything he's just said he says therefore let those who suffer according to god's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good Like he just kind of pulls it all together in one sentence and says, tell you what, take your soul and say, here it is, God. Like, I'll just give it. I trust you, God. Trust is at the core of all this, isn't it? 
until I trust God to know more than I do, it's hard for me to give him my life. And I say, Lord, you run it, even if it means struggle, even if it means suffering. You can do a better job of running my life than I can. And that's what Peter's calling him to. He's like, yeah, it's suffering. He says, here is what I want you to do. He says, I want you to just trust him with your life. Give him your life. And if you think for a minute that God is somehow distant in your suffering, even though it may feel like he's a ways away, he's never a ways away. He's not apathetic. The whole story of the gospel, of Christ coming, suffering, living as a, as a man, and suffering as a man, and then dying for our sins, screams at us that God is not apathetic to our suffering. He died for it. He died for it. He died for us so that sin would not rule in our lives. So that our sin would not call the shots. So that we could live a different life free of the bondage of sin. That's the good news. And that's why Peter is saying to these people and to us, he's like, but rejoice in so much as you share Christ's sufferings. And what do you know about Christ's sufferings? You know that he was beaten, that he was bruised, and that he was hung on a cross for our sins so that you and I could be free of sin. And he was placed in a tomb and that he didn't stay in the tomb, that he rose again to give us a new life. Because death does not have the final word. Difficulty and suffering will not have the final word in our lives. That's good news. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, whatever you're going through, it's temporary. It's not going to last forever. Allow it to do its work, but it's just, it's just for a season. Why? Because Jesus Christ had purchased for us freedom from sin on the cross. That's why I, we were going to do communion before the message, and I got to thinking, you know, why wouldn't we do communion after the message? Because that's what it's about, isn't it? It's about that moment where we come and we remember the broken body of Christ, his shed blood for our sins, that he paid for us a price that we could never have paid for ourselves to deliver you and I from the bondage of a life lived in the clutches of sin. Is it personal to you this morning? Do you know this Jesus have you allowed this Jesus to be your Lord and say, God, I give you my life. I believe that you died for my sins, that you died to set me free of sin. Is it personal to you? Or is it something that, well, they talk about at church and it seems real to other people. But do you know him for yourself? Do you have a relationship with Jesus this morning? If you do, in a moment, we're going to take communion together. And remember, the, the bread is a symbol of his body, broken for you and I. The cup, symbol of the blood that was shed for you and I. You know him. Have you given him your life? Do you allow him to be Lord? Amber, if you want to come on up, I'm going to bring this to a close. I don't know where you're, where you're at 
this morning in your personal life, uh, most of us at any given point have things in our lives that we just wish were not there. And can I just call you to, in this moment as we bow our heads, to say, Lord, I give it to you. I wish it were different, but I'm trusting you to do a work in me to change my life in the process of this. What I'd like to do, um, let's just stand and uh, we're going to pray together and then we're going to take communion together. And um, I'm going to invite you after we pray to come forward and, and to receive communion. Dwayne and Karen Google, if you want to go ahead and come on up front, I ask if they would, if they would um, um, share the communion emblems with us as we file by. And, um, and then we'll take it together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your suffering. Thank you that you were bruised and broken for us, that you purchased um, our freedom with your suffering and with your blood. And uh, so, Lord, as we remember this morning, as we take this, this moment and we remember your broken body and the blood that was shed, um, Lord, make it very personal to each of us. And if it's not... God, would you show it to anyone here who has never responded in faith and just said, Lord, I trust you with my life. I trust you for the forgiveness of my sins. Lord, just even in this moment, uh, would you give them the grace to do that? Thank you, Lord. And we love you. And, uh, and we do want to honor you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.